Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today on the show, since it is Halloween season, we have a very special guest on to talk to us about a Halloween-ish topic. That's right. Today we're talking to Kate Sweeney, writer and esteemed radio producer here in Atlanta with us. I brought my broomstick. That's right. So as part of this Halloween-centric episode... We're going to talk about something that a lot of people find spooky and maybe unsettling and almost creepy until they learn more about it. And that is the topic of death and burial and our attitudes about both of these things in our society today. And Kate wrote an entire book about death and mourning practices in American culture called American Afterlife. So since Kate literally has written the book on death in America, we wanted to ask her some questions, especially focused on women's roles in death and mourning rituals um, for the past couple hundred years. So first of all, Kate, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am a fan of this podcast. Well, we're a fan of yours, so it's mutual. <laughs> um, so first off, Kate, could you just talk a little bit about what inspired you to write American Afterlife, particularly since it is a topic, like Caroline said, that some people might be a little uncomfortable spending so much time with? I would venture to say that most of us would be pretty uncomfortable uh, if you, if you just say, hey, let's write a book about death. Like, that's not the way I want to spend my time. That's that sounds horrible and terrifying, but I think in large part, that's what motivated me actually to write the book is my own fear. So I was obsessed with the TV show Six Feet Under, which y'all may remember the HBO show about the funeral direct in family. And I mean, I was it was the first show I binge watched and would like think about the storylines of the different characters while I was out like walking my dog. I'd be like, oh, that Brenda. <laughs> um, and I would read anything I could get my hands on about Six Feet Under. And I saw uh, an, an article in The New Yorker by Tad Friend about, and, and it mentioned like Six Feet Under. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to read this. And it was about a green burial cemetery in California and this idea of green burial, which is ecologically friendly burial, burial without anything that doesn't decompose completely down to nothing. And it mentioned sort of almost as a footnote in this story that the nation's first green burial cemetery was in South Carolina, which was a short drive from where I was living at the time. So, you know, I, I went over and um, ended up writing a feature story about Ramsey Creek Preserve, the nation's first green burial cemetery. And that got published in Oxford American Magazine. Then I was just kind of off from there. It seemed like everywhere I looked was fascinating stuff about memorialization and how we remember our we how we remember our dead. And, you know, hey, oh, there's this company in Decatur, Georgia, that will make your ashes into artificial coral reefs. And, hey, did you know all of the things that go into a traditional burial? And here's what obit writers do. And here's how they spend their time. And so. It just ended up being this really sort of fascinating thing that snowballed. And as I said, you know, I think one reason that I sort of started this whole thing, even though the book isn't really, it's not about me, was the fact that like so many of us, this is something I know nothing or knew nothing about, but do now. And, um, you know, sort of have this great fear of it. Like it's going to happen to all of us sooner or later. We're all going to lose our loved ones. And that terrifies me still. And so I think on some level, one reason I wrote the book is that I wanted to know what to expect on some level when it did happen to me. Well, one of the most fascinating uh, parts of reading American Afterlife is just seeing how the culture of death has changed. In America, I mean, you're talking about it started off with a, a feature story about green burials. Um, but in the beginning of the book, you focus on more Victorian era death and mourning practices. And they were all about death. They didn't seem afraid of death at all. And in the book, you write, since public grief was mainly the woman's province, it was toward her that rules of mourning were directed. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what some of those womanly rules for grieving were. 
There were so many. <laughs> it was fascinating. So, yeah, like, as you said, so we're talking about the 1800s here. And this was the generation that pretty much invented everything we think about when it comes to death and memorialization from the deathbed scene to the modern day cemetery to what we think of sort of really when it comes to funerals still. And back in those times, men and women both had certain rules of decorum to follow. Like this was like the the age of decorum and etiquette and manners and so forth. So in etiquette books of the 1800s, the sections on death and grieving were often the thickest chunks because, as you say, these people they kind of had a thing <laughs> for, for for death. Um, but because this was the Victorian era also, as you say, um, a lot of this was directed toward women because the women's sphere was largely the private sphere, right, indoors. This was the era that romanticized the family. Actually, it romanticized everything. It was the romantic, capital R, romantic era. Um, but it romanticized motherhood as this sort of holy bastion and this woman's sphere as being in the home and the woman making the home this this wonderful, warm place. And, and that whole idea was, was kind of invented in the 1800s, which is kind of wild to think about because it still is with us today. And the woman's realm was also the emotional realm. So, I mean, when you put all this together with mourning, it was like, yeah, that's, uh, it's everyone's territory, but especially it's, it's for the ladies, right? So one of my favorite deportment handbooks that I ran across has the most awesome title in the world, uh, which I read about in the book, but I really want to just say it because it's great. So this is written in 1881. John H. Young. This book was called Our Deportment, colon. Or the manners, conduct, and dress of the most refined society, including forms for letters, invitations, etc., etc. Also valuable suggestions on home culture and training. That was one title. <laughs> With two etc. <laughs> two etc. Because, you know, why stop at one? This is Victorian times. And, exactly. You know, we like to accessorize. We like to, you know, just add as many knickknacks and stuff as we can. So... During this time, it was typical to prescribe to widows two years of mourning. Uh, Young's guide uh, called for 12 months mourning for one's deceased child or parent, six months for a grandparent or a sibling, six months for a friend who leaves you an inheritance, <laughs> and three That's months. Polite. Yes, very polite. <laughs> and three months for an uncle, aunt, nephew, or niece. Uh, for for men, things were a little more curtailed than for women because. Men were indeed associated with the public sphere and they they were out working, you know, in this sort of new industrial age. Um, they had rules as well, but it was a way bigger deal, as you say, for women. And there were specifics on what the woman could wear and where she could go during this time. And uh, you've got to remember that in this era, etiquette was king and there were specific rules for everything. Um, but, you know, morning as I said, really big deal. So one of these was fashion, right? Of course. So in the first stage of mourning, which was also called deep mourning, which would be one year for a widow, that first stage of mourning, women wore, quote, solid black woolen goods, collar and cuffs of folded untrimmed crepe, a simple crepe bonnet, and a long, thick black crepe veil. And it was very important during this first period that none of these Things that a woman wore even reflected light. Well, down right to not even being able to wear uh, white petticoats. No. In case that showed underneath your right your black button that reflected light, because that might like totally give off the wrong impression. <laughs> you know, what kind of harlot were you, right? So, I mean, like fitted bonnets and veils. And, and our 1800 forebears loved their jewelry, too, right? But this affection was curtailed in the first stage of mourning, uh, you know, that, that one year period for widows. In, in the latter stages of half mourning, however, a woman could don a shorter veil and black silk, which did reflect light, right? And also tons of mourning jewelry and accessories, like there were mourning fans, mourning handkerchiefs. Uh, the jewelry was often crafted of jet, which is actually a type of coal which is very, very heavy. And women would like don long chains of this stuff during one period. It was really fashionable. And I just have to tell you about crepe. And this is C-R-A-P-E, not E-P-E. 
crepe is actually silk, but it's silk that has gone through this process so that it is dull and sort of wrinkled and frankly, very ugly. (laughs) And this was intentional. And it was like they were making this beautiful fabric ugly on purpose for the purpose of mourning. And I think there's actually something kind of lovely in that idea. Because when you're in mourning, it's like, I'm going to wear all the ugly things. Um, nobody was thinking. <laughs> That's totally like my 21st century thing. Like, But, they, you know, they'd lug around these heavy jet chains and wear crepe and just sort of announce, I am in mourning and I am going through a very hard time right now. And companies actually made their fortunes on this mourning crepe. Like, it was really, really big business. And... Fashion magazines advertised all the latest styles in morning fashion. And, you know, of course, it was a bit easier to be a woman in morning if you were a woman of certain means, right? Because you could afford all this stuff. You could really go by all these rules of etiquette. It was a lot easier. Uh, but women of every class, it got to be so that women of just about every class would spend a fortune on their morning accoutrement because the ability to mourn and to do it right was understood to be sort of a high society thing. And so, you know, everybody aspired to that. And this idea of moving through classes and having that class mobility was kind of this new idea. There was a new emerging middle class during the 1800s. So stores and catalogs sold sort of less expensive versions of all of this stuff to everyone. Um, and then I just have to say that I would be remiss if I didn't mention um, everyone's favorite material for mourning in the 1800s, and that's human hair. And so, you know, this was the era in which, you know, you would uh, be courting with your sweetheart and you'd exchange a lock of hair or you'd get a lock of hair from your mother and it was sort of romantic and you'd make a piece of jewelry. And then when that person died, <laughs> as you know, they they would of influenza or childbirth or tuberculosis, or then, you know, then we had the Civil War, there were tons and tons of deaths, Um at that point, you would have this death memento and people would do everything with human hair that you can possibly imagine. They would be um, brooches, necklaces made from human hair, uh, bracelets, uh, earrings. Uh, I even saw a few tiaras. So you would be wearing somebody's hair on top of your own hair. So uh, wreaths like these giant. I, I was in the, the Museum of Funeral Customs in Springfield, Illinois. And there was this giant funeral wreath that I was sort of gazing at for a couple of minutes. And then I realized reading the placard, it was like material human hair. And I was just like, oh, my God. (laughs) Wow. And like all this stuff is really uncomfortable to our 21st century perspective. Right. Because it's sort of. It's it's really visceral. Um, This was also the era when people would take memorial photography of their dead. And that was extremely popular. People still do that today, actually. But. This was like the golden age of people taking photographs of their dead and displaying them for all to see in in lockets or in their houses. And all of this stuff, this sort of visceral, very close connection with death tends to make us very uncomfortable today. It makes me uncomfortable, but to me, it also in a way kind of underscores our own distance from death. Well, it's also fascinating, too, how you're talking about these visceral displays of death and the Victorian obsession with even taking memorial photographs that we would not think of doing today and yet their complete discomfort with visceral things such as sex. You know, it's so it's so strange. Yeah. And and there are even some social scientists who posit that there's been a switch because in the eighteen hundreds, you know, this that was the time when they, they would like cover legs of furniture yeah. with, you know, like material because it might remind you of a human of like a lady's leg and you might get too worked up. Our wooden lady legs, <laughs> you know. <laughs> cover your wooden lady legs. Yeah. And and people were really uncomfortable with the idea of sex. Um and there have been social so- scientists that have posited that today um sex and death have sort of swapped places, as you may know. Um and like we can talk about sex all day long and like it's everywhere in popular culture, but death is the thing that we apologize for bringing up because it's uncomfortable and it's unseemly. Yeah. And I feel like today you would never see someone. I mean, granted, you would probably never see someone in a Victorian or Edwardian uh, black morning gown today, typically. But I mean, it's, it is interesting to think about how it was so not only ex- uh, accepted, but expected that you would see someone 
publicly mourning for that long of a period, whereas today I almost feel like people would be just fed up with it and just say, oh, get on with it, because it would make them uncomfortable or they would just think, why are you still even in this? Right. Yeah. I mean, if you think back to the 1800s, death was all around in in a way that it isn't today. Right. Um, Besides the fact that you had people sort of dropping left and right from all sorts of disease and farming accidents and the Civil War, etc., dying and death took place in the house. And again, was very much uh, something that women spend a lot of time around, um, but everyone saw a lot of. And because it's something that we all experienced all the time, it was sort of a, a phase that you would go into and then go out of and go into again. And it was sort of part of American life rather than today. It, it seems like it's something, you know, I talked to a lot of people for this, this book who did obviously experienced loss. And there was the sense of, for a lot of folks, not only loss and sadness and grieving, but surprise and uh, the sense of betrayal that this had happened to them. Like, oh, this wasn't supposed to be part of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not part of the expectation of what happens to us. Yeah. Well, so talking more about death-related industries, you you brought up the fashion industry as one of them. But so did the development of death-related industries in the 18th and 19th centuries, like the formalization of the funeral industry and the rise of hospitals, impact women's roles in dying and mourning? Yes. Yes, it did. (laughs) And I think it's kind of fascinating. In the 1700s, if you look at town directories, you'll often see a position called layer out of bodies, which is exactly what it sounds like. (laughs) And this was a role often held by women. Um, These same women were often midwives. So the same women who brought life into the world sort of shepherded it out. And through the 1800s and in the early 1900s in many places in this country, small towns and in the, the American South, Death and dying took place at home, or you would hope that it would take place at home, because you knew that it was going to happen to you. You saw it all the time. You just hoped that when it did happen, you'd be at home. You know, often doctors would pay house calls, they would visit, and they were men, so they were definitely in the mix, too. But the home was the woman's space, and caregiving was her role. And so, and so, yeah, she, you know, women sort of helped to sort of shepherd this whole process. There was this cultural notion of the good death and that was death at home surrounded by loved ones and it actually stemmed from evangelical christianity and so you know ideally it was also like being saved before you died but it became such a huge cultural idea and of import to just about everyone that whether or not you were christian you would hope for a good death and women definitely helped to create this homey picture um because with our our nurturing and our caregiving ways um But all of this sort of began to erode, actually, with the Civil War, because people were dying places far from home um, and people didn't know how their loved ones were dying. And it was really sort of this cataclysmic um, effect. Besides the death, you had, you know, besides the fact that so-and-so had died, they were dying far away and under circumstances that that you, you didn't know. And people wanted their loved ones back in order to have funerals. And so you saw the rise of embalming, right? For the first time, which before then had been considered to be really kind of this bizarre practice. And so people would embalm soldiers so that they could be shipped home and they could have, you know, proper funerals for them. And most notably, actually, with the death of Abraham Lincoln, you know, after his assassination, his body went on this tour of the country um, via train and during that train trip, his body was embalmed and re-embalmed and re-embalmed, actually, because uh, it went on for so long. And but, you know, people gathered in crowds and they saw Abe Lincoln after his death. And this also helped to uh, spur on the acceptance of embalming um, and make it acceptable. So we see the rise of this new funeral industry at the end of the 1800s, sort of um, based on this practice of embalming. And and the funeral industry, you know, funeral directors were mostly men. Actually, they were men at this time. They they, they were men because men, public sphere, women, private sphere. And then around the turn of the 20th century, you see the rise of germ theory and death and dying um, 
just weren't happening as willy nilly like all the time as they had to like death rates plummeted and death and dying were also moved out of the home, which is something that I just found to be so fascinating researching this book. I remember like these were these moments when I would be in libraries and like reading about this stuff and like look up and be like, no way, <laughs> like want to tell somebody about this stuff. Um, so you see the rise of hospitals, you see the rise of funeral homes. And both of these institutions were actually made to look home like at first in order to attract people. Um, hospitals were actually made to look like these sort of spas to attract upper classes who thought of them as places for the destitute up until this point. The first standalone funeral businesses, many of them were called funeral parlors. Uh, the parlor being the room in the house in which, you know, we traditionally would uh, court with our sweethearts and maybe get married and then expect to have our funeral, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so they're like, so these funeral directors were like, you can trust us. We've got funeral parlors just like you do at your home. You know, I don't know why I just made that weird place <laughs> for the, my imaginary funeral director. Um so, yeah, yeah. And like fashions were changing and all these Victorian accessories and heavy curtained rooms filled with knickknacks just became seemed really quickly, really unfashionable and sort of associated with this gloomy idea of the, those Victorians who were death obsessed and had that they were obsessed with having death in their homes. And that became a weirder and weirder idea really quickly as the 20th century progressed. And in fact, it was. A woman's magazine, I don't remember which one it says in the book, but I don't remember now, that actually made this decision um, to rename the parlor in, in, in the in the family home. Uh, instead of calling it the parlor, which was, you know, you think of parlor and you think of like these dark rooms with tons of knickknacks and heavy curtains and not much sunlight, to call it the living room. Oh, well, and I mean, so significant to the living Room. I know what. <laughs> so wild. Like, <laughs> and there was this idea around that time that that sort of rose up, and I think it's still with us to some extent. That that we would, through germ theory and medicine, conquer all disease, and that death was sort of this ultimate malady, and we would conquer that too. Well, I'm really curious from the research that you did, looking at the different kinds of death industries today. Whether you noticed any gendered patterns, like, for instance, you mentioned, you know, back in the day, funeral directors were men. But um, and a lot of the people you talk to in the book are women. So clearly we have a role in this. But I was just wondering if there were any kind of air, like pockets where women tend to dominate. So the funeral industry, yeah, uh, is sort of traditionally male dominated and not only male, male dominated, but sort of old men dominated mm -hmm. traditionally. Um, but now women are moving in and something like 57% of United States mortuary school graduates today are women. And that's up from something like 5% in 1970. And I, I got those figures from a Slate article. And we see the rise of groups like the Association of Women Funeral Professionals. And there's actually a social group. Uh, I'm not sure if they're around anymore, but they were a few years ago called Funeral Divas. And it was actually like this, this social networking group for you know, ladies in, in the industry. And uh, we see the, the rise of groups like the Order of the Good Death, which uh, is spearheaded by this amazing mortician in California named Caitlin Doty. And she and sort of her ilk are all about bringing back actually a holistic feel to death and dying, promoting things like home funerals and green burial, which is really interesting because if you think about it, like you might look at it and say, well, that's that's sort of new agey and that's this new wave of doing th way of doing things, but actually harkens back to the 1800s. Right. Mm -hmm. And and the way things used to be. Um, and I interviewed actually ended up interviewing a lot of women for the book, which I didn't set out to do, but just happened. Uh, I interview men, too, but um a lot of ladies and, and the book includes chapters about a number of really dynamic women involved in death and dying in one way or another. Um, and they were really some of the most vivid interviews I did. There was the co-owner of a green burial cemetery, a funeral chaplain, a memorial tattoo artist and a current day memorial photographer and also an obit writer who can forget Kay Powell, mm -hmm. retired obituary writer for the Atlanta Journal Constitution. And she was amazing. She's just this force. Uh, so as I said, there are plenty of men in the book as well, but these women were just incredible to talk to. 
and for me, just sort of personally, really inspiring. Well, and it was interesting to reading the profiles of those women, because in, for instance, the cases of uh, the memorial tattoo artist and the chaplain in particular, I was waiting to read about a guy who's doing these kinds of things. And it seems like these women are also in their own way, kind of paving their way via death into more what we would kind of consider to be more male dominated spheres. And I thought that was really interesting as well. Um, and one of the women who, whose story m- made the biggest impact and I think would resonate a lot too with um, our audience is a memorial photographer, Juana O'Grief. That's right. Could you talk a little bit about what Juana does and whether it's maybe an extension of the traditional Victorian women as gatekeeper role in public grieving? Well, it's really interesting because Juana Juana's a photographer and what she does on the side is she works as a doula and that's a non-medical birthing assistant. And it was actually during a training session as a doula that somebody mentioned, you know, we're looking for volunteers to join this organization to take memorial photographs. And that's something that Juana already had done in her personal life. She had photographed her father sort of in his decline. And and that was sort of her artistic response to her experiences in the world. And so it was sort of natural for her to sign up to do it. But I think you're right um, that it does harken back to this, the, these roles that, that women used to sort of traditionally have in um, the 18th, 19th century and probably on back of, um, you know, uh, shepherding life both into and out of the world, you know, being midwives. I mean, she's not a midwife. She's a doula, but being midwives and um, being folks who care for the dead, you know, like washing the body and, and all of that kind of thing. Well, and the fact, too, that she tends to take photographs of uh, babies, like newborns that have died was something so like I couldn't imagine not to say that men couldn't take those photographs and they couldn't be as equally powerful. But in those moments where she's in the hospital room with these parents holding their deceased newborn or almost deceased newborn, I can't imagine almost a. Uh, a guy in that position, if that makes sense. And maybe that's me just like being too gender roly about it. But um, that made a, a big impression on me. Yeah, she actually volunteers for this organization called Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep, which is specifically um, centered around newborns and infants who are who are dying and uh, for parents who want those photographs. And yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, she's comfortable in the the role as a doula. And I think women in these sort of experiences of childbirth, you know, we might expect to see another woman as a professional in the room, um, but not necessarily an extra man necessarily. Um, And, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting before I met her. And even when I first met her, I didn't understand why anybody would want these pictures. Like I, 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 I didn't understand why anybody would want photographs of their dead, frankly. But, I mean, if you think about it, these are often the only photos that these people will have of uh, of their infant children and the only evidence that this relationship ever existed. And sort of, you know, I, I think especially in our, our fairly death-phobic society in which we exist today, in, in which we live, um, there might be a tendency to downplay those relationships um, or, or that loss as being as meaningful as a loss of an older child or the loss of a peer. Um, because, you know, you might think, well, you know, it was only a short time um, and, you know, people might want to downplay it. But I think it's precisely even maybe even because of that impulse of our society that having these photographs is so meaningful for people or can be. I mean, obviously not everybody wants them or, or needs them. They're not useful to, for everybody who goes through this experience. But um, for for those for whom it is useful, um, I think it can be really cathartic. I mean, you might have an experience of you're an older sibling um, and you know this story, but now you have sort of this evidence of like, oh, there we were in a photograph together. You know, my 
twin and me or something like that. You know, these are very, very sad circumstances. Um, but just serving as evidence that, okay, this, this life existed and this death really happened. Yeah. I can imagine that it would possibly help serve as a form of closure in a way, if there can ever be closure with something like that, but certainly help the grieving process. Yeah. Or yeah, it is, it is really, it is really sad. So you have a great chapter on obituaries, and this is of personal interest to me just because I am super family history, genealogy obsessed, and people who research family history rely so much on obituaries to get those little details. Who did they leave behind? Who preceded them in death? Where did they live? Where were they buried? Was there any sort of funeral? Where was the funeral? All of that kind of stuff. And so what also comes up when you're doing family history is the realization that you know, sometimes people just didn't have obits and there was this societal perception of like, well, did you matter enough? Were you important enough in society to have an obituary? And, you know, I have a lot of family members who I'll never find one for them because they didn't have enough money or simply because they were female. <laughs> and so um that leads me to the question of your discussion in the book about 19th century obituaries being largely dedicated to white men. And so basically, what was up with that? Did that have a lot to do with just social standing? Yeah, I think it had everything to do with social standing. And often when you would see obituaries written for um, minority groups, I guess, for want of a better term, um, groups like women, Native Americans, African Americans, they would play up the qualities that society valorized in them. So if mm-hmm. there were... Um, an obituary written about a woman, it would, you know, play up in, in the 1800s, uh, you know, how she was such a great homemaker, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. a loving wife, which, you know, doesn't sound too unfamiliar today. Um, not that these are bad things, but, um, but, you know, for, you know, at, for obituaries of Native Americans, it, it might be the, um, the guy who helped the, army to win some battle, like, you know, actually like, you know, joined the Union Army and, you know, in the fight against the Confederacy or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, people were remembered, but if they sort of exemplified the the values of the time. Well, and the thing is that this is still a conversation that's going on in terms of gender representation in obituaries. There oh, yeah. Because it was either earlier this year or in 2013 when the New York Times featured this prominent obituary of uh, this leading female scientist whose name is escaping me at the moment uh, but the lead was all about this beef stroganoff that she made and it brought up this entire conversation and some people started actually doing some digging looking at who the Times continues to dedicate their obituaries to and it still is very much the realm of white men. So especially because you interviewed um, Kay Powell, this well-known obituary writer, and you even mentioned, too, that um, they're trying to, you know, pay more attention to people who, in addition to white men. (laughs) Um, So does does gender parity matter, though? Because I remember reading about this whole obituary gender gap and thinking, well, is that such a big deal? But it kind of is a big deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it matters. Obits serve as records of the lives that we wish to remember, as you know, you said a few moments ago, Caroline. And, and, and so who gets remembered matters. Uh, I, I got some figures from Mother Jones magazine in 2012. The Washington Post published obituaries for 18 women and 48 men. The LA Times, 36 women and 114 men. And of course, uh, the New York Times about which this whole around which this whole kerfuffle kind of began, 108 men to 29 women. And you could look at the, the and the argument has been made that, that the men who died and who were covered had all these great accomplishments in like the 1950s through 1970s, which was a time when men were largely the ones making waves in the world. So it's like, mm-hmm. well, of course, we're going to cover them. But then you could also look at the definition of making waves, I think. Right. So like in what sphere and. What of those women who received little recognition in their time for their work in politics and literature and the arts or wherever, but still made a big difference? And, uh, you know, shouldn't we recognize them, too? Well, and at least they're beef stroganoff. 
you know, if anything. At the very least. At the very least. I mean, you might be a scientist, but, um, but she can cook, but she ladies can cook. and gentlemen. And then there's the whole question of whether or not this, this idea is even important anymore because newspapers are dying out, right? But while we're seeing a transition from print to sort of the online world in many ways, or, you know, we don't really know where things are going. It's kind of an exciting time. Um, the obit isn't going anywhere. I, I think about a couple of years ago when one of my favorite writers, uh, it was actually David Rakoff died. Uh, I wasn't even thinking consciously when I went to my computer and like found everything I could find that was written about him, every single thing. And I wasn't thinking I am looking for obituaries, but I just wanted to find every single piece that was written on him. Um, and, and that was sort of like, and, and I think that we all do that for our heroes or for people that we're fascinated by. And while family written obituaries are great in their own way, like if you're if you're doing some research and you want to find out certain, you know, you, you can you can find out certain pieces of information. There's also something about the journalist written obituary a story crafted by a professional writer who had no stake in what was going on in these people's lives who could, you know, write a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and, and what details that person chooses to include. And, you know, it's different from a Facebook page. It's different from somebody's website that they leave behind. Um, it's, you know, a story written by a third person. And I think that in some ways, we're always going to be interested in finding those stories, whatever form they take. Well, and how many times have we referenced women's obituaries in our podcast research. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's where we've found so many details about people's lives that you aren't going to find just on a, a timeline of their accomplishments or uh, a basic professional bio, or like you said, some kind of family eulogy. So, I mean, it's definitely been useful for, for us with stuff I've never told you as well. Yeah. So, it seems like death itself has become increasingly private and for families, for individuals. And so why do you think that is? Are we more afraid of death and dying than we used to be? Are we just do we just feel weird about it? I think it is simply due to lack of familiarity. Uh, if we go back again to the 1800s, you know, people experience death a lot more frequently. Um, you know, I could expect you know, by the age of 30 or so to have had 12 children and then like, you know, four of them had lived and that kind of thing. Pre-germ theory, sort of the bad old days. And and I wouldn't want to go back to those times. But at the same time, death was a part of life. It was a part of what you expected to happen to you. Uh, Nowadays, I really think that it's not what we expect to happen to us. It's not part of what we talk about when we talk about the experience of our lifetimes. Um, you know, American values are of, uh, you know, ambition and winning and youth and just sort of this, this, this pursuit of success and, and death isn't a part of that. And it's interesting. So I, I talked about an etiquette manual from the 1800s, which had this very thick section on what to do when death happened to you and how to treat other people who were going through this phase. You can compare that with another etiquette manual that I found from the early 1920s written by this woman named Lillian Eichler. And the emphasis throughout her chapter and her etiquette manual on death and grieving is how to make sure basically that you don't embarrass other people with your displays of grief. Mm. Um, she even goes, you know, she goes so far as to talk about like these out, outmoded Victorian ways of outrageous displays of grief are, are, you know, they're unfashionable and they're unseemly uh, for people of certain classes. And she also says that, you know, if you, are planning to go to a funeral, but you don't think you're going to be able to, quote, control your grief, you should consider not going. And although I read that and I was just like, whoa, you're extreme woman. (laughs) Uh, I think to some extent those ideas are still with us. Grief belongs in certain places, but not in others. It belongs in funeral homes and cemeteries. 
but it doesn't belong in the roadside memorial on my drive to Smoothie King. I mm-hmm. shouldn't have to see that on the, on my drive to my children's birthday party. Thank you very much. And I think it's something that we, we all kind of struggle with. Uh, you know, back in the day when somebody died, you knew how to treat them because it's something that you had been through many times yourself. And it's something you had been taught. Uh, nowadays, when we experience loss, what do we do? We take a few months or a few weeks off of work and then we return. And often people don't know how to talk to us. It's mm-hmm. kind of awkward and weird. And then you're expected to behave just as if everything is fine. And, and yeah, so I, yeah, I don't, I, I think it is more private and it's simply because it's, it's something we may go to the age of 35, 40, 45 before we experience sort of significant catastrophic loss ourselves. And that's not the way it used to be. And I don't think we need to, just like heap lots of blame upon ourselves. It's just the way it is now, but it's, it's good that we're starting to, I think we're starting to have more conversations about death and, and grieving. We're seeing a lot more conversations out in, in media, in, um, in American culture. And I think that that's a good thing. Well, and what comes to mind in terms of those, uh, like you said, talking about um, seeing more of these conversations out, the first thing that came to my mind was the fact that usually now I first learn about a public figure dying on Twitter. I've learned about friends' deaths from Facebook. And now it's like we're almost having to relearn this new morning etiquette. And it is a public thing of like, well, do I tweet? Do I do the hashtag RIP? Do I write a thoughtful Facebook post? How do I do this. So on the one hand, maybe it is opening up more conversations about it, but also sort of forcing us to um, learn how to mourn in a new way. Yeah, it's kind of the whole social, the whole social media thing is kind of opening up this brave new world. Um, I think, though, to a large extent, we also have our uh, baby boomer brethren to thank for the, the opening up of this conversation uh, you know, this is the generation that reinvented doing birth at home, uh, that reinvented the way that you could get married. Like, we're going to get married on a beach instead of in a church. And now that many of them have experienced the loss of their own parents, for example, and seen how that went down, they're looking ahead at their own deaths and wanting to plan for those in the same way that they planned for these other major rites of passage and I think that's one big reason that we're seeing the opening up of this conversation. Yeah, it's funny. Preparing for this episode, I was actually talking to my mother about this very topic. And, I mean, death and dying is not something that I have talked to my parents about at all, um, even though they both have lost both of their parents. And my mother, whose age you you can't talk about in public, I remember that. That's right. Yes. <laughs> Cannot reveal Sally's age. But, yeah, she was just joking about it and said that uh, she wants an open casket. And she not only wants an open casket, but she wants to be sitting up with her arms casually out to the sides like she's sitting in a hot tub in her bathrobe with a wine glass in one hand. So I like Sally's style. I'm going to honor her wishes. And you can do that. <laughs> I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. You can. Uh, I don't know if you've seen articles uh, like you can. Have uh, you can decide that you want to be embalmed and posed for your funeral in a way that you would have been in life. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Bathrobes. It's going to be you and me in this podcast studio, Caroline. <laughs> Letting you know now. Just seal us up like we're in an Egyptian tomb with our headphones on. Smashing. Yeah. <laughs> Bury me in my headphones. <laughs> well, Kate, I'm really curious to know whether writing American Afterlife has altered your perception of death and how you wish to be mourned. In many ways, I am still figuring it out uh, because it's like the biggest thing that we can conceive of. And I know that I wrote this book partly out of neurotic fear of uh, losing the people I love. And I haven't gotten over that. I haven't reached like this kind of Zen state that a lot of people, funeral professionals and people who work in areas of death and dying seem to have reached, um, haven't reached that state. But at the same time, I'm in my 30s, and I think if I hadn't gone on this adventure, there's no way I would have done any planning for my own inevitable demise. Uh, but I have, and 
it's because of all these stories that I've heard from people about people who didn't, you know, and people who didn't talk about what they wanted or tell people where important documents were. And that's a really rough thing for people to be left not only with uh, their mourning and grief and whatever complicated feelings may arise there, but also uh, with tons of work to do and uh, sort of, you know, hunting down of documents and that kind of thing and, and trying to figure out what so-and-so wanted in these moments. Um, so, yeah, I have made those plans and along with my husband. And not that I think that I'm oh so such an important figure in this in this world, but I've actually, b- because I've talked to so many people um, who have gone sort of every different route in terms of memorialization from traditional funerals to direct cremation to green burial to having ashes made into LPs. Or I haven't talked to those people because they're dead, but they're <laughs> I've talked to their loved ones who have survived. Um, and for every single one of those decisions, people have told me stories about like how they were horrible and how they were just, you know, really like um, scarring and they wish they hadn't done it that way. And then I've talked to other people who've done the same thing, who've said like, this is so cathartic and this is what our family needed. Um, and so I went into this project with sort of opinions and really judgy opinions, as we all have about different methods of memorialization. I thought certain things were weird and certain things were cool. Um, but I don't feel that way anymore uh, because for every option, much as anybody may want to judge them, it, it's right for somebody out there. And so for that reason, although I'm not I don't want to elevate my own sense of importance in this whole realm I've actually decided not to really be public about what our own choices have been um, just because I don't even want to even begin to take on any kind of appearance of bias. But um, it is definitely like a, a brave new world of options out there. And if you want to be set up with your microphone and headphones, you can do it. Excellent. I'll tell Sally that the whole propped up drinking her wine into eternity can happen. It's an option. <laughs> well, Kate, sweetie, thank you so much. For coming on the show. Um, can you just let folks know where they can find out more about American Afterlife Encounters and the Customs of Mourning, which I do highly recommend. It's a great read. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my website, folks can certainly go to my website, which is AmericanAfterlifeBook.com. It's published by University of Georgia Press, so you can head on over there, but... Yeah, I've got a few more uh, like speaking engagements and things like that this fall, and I would love to say hey. Well, now we want to hear from our listeners about their experiences with death rituals as well, particularly since it is the Halloween season. Send us an email. It can be spooky if you want it to be. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. So I've got a Facebook message here from Lena. She writes, love your podcast, can't get enough. Writing to you about the grandmother hypothesis. I'm a single mom, mid-30s, and rely significantly on support from my dad. He lives out of state, but has designed his life in such a way that he travels to Seattle to visit or stay with us for a week out of every month. He works as a musician playing at assisted living and memory care facilities. I feel so incredibly fortunate that he does this for us every month. As a grandparent, my dad helps in so many ways with my son. He provides a playful and intelligent male role model and never leaves a question unanswered. He helps with homework, helps him get to his extracurriculars while he's in town, plays music at his school and scouting events, cooks and cleans, and helps me with anything extra that I need done around the house but don't have time for. He also allows me the ability to schedule dates while he's in town with no need to worry about a sitter. As a single mom who works at a large tech company, the support my dad gives me is so incredibly valuable. I don't think I could attach a price to what it's worth to feel the type of love and commitment I have from him. As my son grows older, he and my dad share many an inside joke now, and when my dad isn't around, I often feel his presence from my son. Many of my friends would say, he is a 40-year-old with a 10-year-old body. He is basically a young ginger version of my dad. Thank you for your amazing podcast. And thank you, Lena. 
Well, I have a letter here from Rachel about an episode that was published a while back, but she is just now getting to it, and she wanted to talk about it. Um, it's our podcast on endometriosis. Uh, she says, I was diagnosed with stage 3 endometriosis last year, two weeks before my 24th birthday. I count myself super lucky it was discovered when it was. I had gone to several doctors with pain issues years prior, but I was always told it was in my head or that I had constipation. In May 2013, though, they found a cyst and finally agreed to remove it in October because its consistent growth made them think it was a tumor. I won't go into all the gory details of what they found during surgery, but it was really ugly. They weren't able to safely remove all the lesions. My husband and I have been given about two years in which they think maybe I have a chance to become pregnant, but I've been told to expect an early hysterectomy and other radical treatments at the end of it. But while this disease is alarming, what I find most disturbing is how people in my generation don't know about it. I had no clue the condition even existed until I was diagnosed. I would have never thought to ask about it or suggest it to earlier doctors. My only friends who had heard about it were either ones studying medicine or the ones who personally knew someone who had it, but most of them had no idea what the condition actually was. I can't believe endometriosis wasn't covered in sex ed and people aren't made more publicly aware. Sometimes I feel like this diagnosis made me a member of a secret society. So seriously, thank you for doing a podcast on this awful disease and getting the word out. The more girls who hear about it, the more who can ask questions about it to their doctors and maybe, hopefully, the more who can start getting treatment earlier versus later. So thank you, Rachel, and best of luck. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with more info about Kate Sweeney, so you can check out her book, American Afterlife, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 